This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. This episode is brought to you by Sax.com. At Sax.com, it's easy to find your new vibe. Dive into the Western trend with gold cowboy boots from Stott or go full 90s throwback with platforms from Prada. You can shop for everything on your agenda, whether it's a breezy Zimmerman dress for a garden party or a bright Chloe blazer for brunch. Find inspiration for your new vibe every day at Saks.com. Another day is here and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, and welcome to New Books in Performing Arts, a podcast from the New Books Network. My name is Andy Boyd. Today on the program, I'm speaking with Annie B. Parson about her new book, The Choreography of Everyday Life. Annie B., welcome to the program. Thank you, Andy. It's a great pleasure to be here. I really enjoyed this book, and it's it's sort of an interesting uh, combination of kind of memoir, essay, some kind of dance theory um i'd love to know kind of what the inspiration behind this book was and you know kind of the the impetus behind writing it Ah, okay um well it's a pandemic book meaning that i was sequestered so to speak in my room with the assignment to write a book and what could be more amazing really the timing was so cool because i didn't have rehearsal and i wasn't generating dance materials so i was just writing and i and i'm not a quote unquote writer um and so i had a lot of time to experiment with writing and one of the i think first things that happened um well there were two sort of first things that happened one was that the editor said do you have a book And I said, no, but I could. And she said, why don't you just write something? And something about the tonality of that was very inspiring. Um, There was a kind of freedom to it. It wasn't, it it felt light, you know? Um, The other thing was that I am really interested in form as a choreographer. And so I thought maybe my experiment in a sense is how to sort of choreograph the page and to bring um, rhythmic, a rhythmic element to the page and a visual element to the page. And I had this idea, what if I had wrote in short sections and then had a, almost like a percussive beat at the end of each section that was five or six syllables um, so it's a, I've played a lot with poetic, you know, forms from poetry. So I guess it's a, I made up a little form, mm-hmm. a poetic form and I pretty much stick with it. It does, you know, develop and vary, but basically it held me together, I think, which is what I really needed. I can imagine that type of form would kind of require you to end each paragraph with like a, a sort of concise, you know, almost like a soundbite. Uh, it, it, did, did you feel like your, your paragraphs were kind of drawn more towards a specific point by saying that you were going to kind of separate out the last phrase of the paragraph? It would be like if you were creating a series of solos and you said to yourself, each solo is going to be 60 seconds. And then after the solo, there'll be a pause. And then there'll be one action. I'm just thinking of this now. Choreographically, it would be like that. So, and then later, I thought, when I looked at them, when I had a draft, I thought, oh my gosh, each of these short five or six syllable percussive endings is less like a soundbite. And it's more like a choreographic directive. 
So like if you look through them and you just picked those out and didn't read anything else but those short beats, um, they all have to do with movement in a sense, pretty much, or theatricality, which wasn't intentional. Yeah, I'm I'm just doing that now. I'm flipping through my copy and they're you're you're right. They are very movement oriented. One says we just stand there, one says her hand on his hand. Yeah, exactly. One says as the world shifts. So they do have a sort of yeah, choreographic feel to them. Yeah. Are you actually Yeah. Hmm? Are you actually flipping through a real copy of the book? Yes, I am. See, I haven't seen it yet. That's amazing. Oh, really? <laughs> no, it's supposed to come today. <laughs> I think it's a galley. I think it's, uh, yeah, but, but yeah, I do have a physical copy, which thanks, thanks to the kind folks at Verso for sending that to me, cool. um, which brings actually brings up another thing I wanted to ask you about. It's, it's sort of an interesting publisher to be coming out with a book like this. I think of Verso as being, you know, mainly a, a, a publisher that publishes sort of left-wing, you know, journalism, social theory, history, stuff like that. They, they also do publish some fiction, including some fiction that I really love, but I was kind of interested in, in your choice to, put out this book through them. I mean, I imagine they, they approached you, but you know, what made you think that this would be a a good fit? I, I had the question myself. Um, it's a publisher. I also deeply admire some of the greatest lefty thinkers published on Verso. And I thought, why do they want to do dance? And it turned out it was because the editor who approached me was a big dance fan. And she'd seen a lot of my work through my company, which is very rare. As you know, Andy, in our world, it's pretty small. Um, and that was why I wanted to do it, because she knew my work as a choreographer, but was thinking of it in a different sort of playground, which, of course, is exciting. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I, that makes sense to me. I could see somebody seeing a big dance show and thinking, I bet this choreographer could write a book. <laughs> Yeah. Well, cool. Speaking of kind of great, uh, you know, lefty authors, one book that your book reminded me of a bit was John Berger's Ways of Seeing, um, just in terms in terms of the way it's kind of laid out on the page, most of all, that there's this combination of, of text and image. By any chance, was, was that a book that you thought about when you were writing this book? No, but bingo, because when I sent the first draft in, uh, the editor, Jesse Kindig, said, wait, this is reminding me of ways of seeing. <laughs> and then I went, you know, furiously to my bookshelf and found my copy, my dog-eared copy that I hadn't read since college, probably. And yeah, I mean, it's, I, I was so honored that she thought that and that you'd think that it's such yeah. a brilliant book. There's a like, um, socialist YouTube person who once described ways of seeing as the only book that I like. (laughs) It's quite an honor. That is a cool, that's really a great subject. I mean, it's a very Um, experimental book. Totally. You dedicate the book to your father, David. Could you tell us a bit about him and and kind of what his relationship to dance was? Yeah. Uh, My father was a dancer in that he danced all the time. He grew up in the Depression when, you know, there was no TV and they just turned on the radio and he said they danced for fun. Like he he danced with his parents, he danced with his relatives. Then when he got older, they had dances. And when I was growing up, he danced sort of, I guess you would now call it improvised, like he would put on Coltrane or, um, you know, any of Gary Burton and, you know, jazz greats and he would just dance uh, by himself and I think he was a dancer I know he was a dancer he brought me to see dance my entire life I saw ballet since I was little like from the top of the auditorium theater in Chicago I actually thought that it wasn't people because we were so far away (laughs) but you know he was pretty avid like we would go if the Joffrey was in town, I'm from Chicago, we would go like three or four times, um, wow. you know, and then he also got really into experimental dance um, and saw Santa Driver and other experimental choreographers in the seventies before I was into it. So yeah, he, he, he wasn't professionally a dancer, but yeah, it only fell apart when I decided to become, <laughs> to dance and he was very worried. <laughs> 
Why was he worried? Oh, because there's no money. <laughs> oh, that. <laughs> um, did he, I, I don't know if he's, is, is your father still alive? No. Did he live long enough to see some of your work? Yeah, he saw some of my work. Um, he saw probably up two or three pieces. I don't really know what he thought, but I mean, he was gracious. Mm-hmm. My my mom saw one of my plays once and said, why do you have to make it so dark and disturbing? Yeah, I think that was probably in his mind. <laughs> Something like that. Yeah. Um, so can, can you talk a bit about kind of your your history in, in dance and the people who influenced you when you were kind of forming your choreographic, I don't know if voice is the right word, but but style? You write about Trisha Brown a bit, and I feel like a lot of the things people say about your work are similar to the things people said about the kind of Judson scene in the 60s. Is, is that a, was that a kind of formative um, kind of nexus of, of artists for you? Yeah, I mean, I end up writing about Trisha Brown a lot even though she wasn't the central focus for me as a young choreographer, I was much more interested in Lucinda Childs and Yvonne Rayner. Um, but those were like the parents, like by the time that I was studying dance, they were, I mean, Yvonne Rayner had moved on to film and I didn't see any of the original works, but I did see enough of the Judson's, you know, whatever later in their careers I was very excited by the lack of romanticism and the uh, sort of dailiness of the whole enterprise. But at the same time, I was very excited by Pina Bausch when she arrived and something about the theatricality um, and the, the insistence on, um, on, th- on the use of all these theatrical forms, that hitting the Judsons as an opposite really was something about the combination of those two very opposite kinds of artists, I think was my biggest influence. At the same time, I was really busy doing this thing at the, what we used to sit and watch videos at the New York Performing Arts Library. I would watch dance from all over the world. Um, And I guess now it'd be just like watching YouTube videos for a second. But when you actually make a trip there with your notebook and you can't, videotape the material or look at it in rehearsal, I would study these very old folk dances and sort of try to learn them in the, in the library. Wow. And that was a really big influence for me, maybe as much as anything. That's interesting. I, I wouldn't have, I wouldn't have thought that you were so interested in folk dance. What, what do you feel like that influence gave you? Um, it's a little well, hard. Those influences, to... folk dance isn't one thing, obviously. <laughs> Something about, um, ooh, that's, it's kind of a hard question because I think there's something about the absolute fundamental truth of dance is in folk dance, is in the circle, um, is in the community coming together to dance for their lives, for fertility, for a ritual of any kind. I mean, dance was used for everything. It was everything. I, I really believe that. And everyone danced. So I think I was really drawn to how, how fundamental it was to society. And in, in contrast to how miffed I was about how cut off America is from dance, especially in the 80s and the 90s, now I feel like dance is coming back through more popular forms like TikTok and stuff like that. But it's been very off the radar, as you know, there's a very, very small audience. It's really an underappreciated art form. And so maybe it was something about folk dance, learning folk dances that made me sort of believe in the form itself. And I think your dances often have that quality of, uh, they're able to be, or not all of them, but some of them are able to be performed by kind of non trained non-specialist dancers is that that something yeah yeah yeah. i mean i think there's i really delineate between dances when i'm hired to choreograph something or decide to choreograph something for non-dancers um and i've learned to do it i learned to do it right away because i worked a lot in theater at first um but 
when it's a it's almost a different form the the compositional elements are exactly the same but um it's very very different it is a kind of folk dance the difference the thing is in a way it's the way working with non-dancers is not a folk dance is that <laughs> most countries or it used to be that people were doing folk dances since they were little so they kind of were trained you know, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. but when I work with non-dancers, they really have no experience moving their bodies in any kind of, you know, like I can remember working with some musicians and them being a bit miffed at how complex and rigorous choreography is, even in its most simplest form. And they were saying, but we, when we move and we play music, we're free. We're, we feel free. We just freely move. And I'm like, the choreography isn't free. There's nothing free about it. <laughs> um, right? And so it's like a poetic form. There's, there, the point of it is that it has a formal setting. And then within that, you know, there's freedoms of varying kinds. Um, we don't grow up moving our bodies in that way. So people are very untrained, usually when I'm working with them. And there's a charm in that, for sure. But there's also a hurdle. With Big Dance, you've worked with a lot of the same people for a very long time. What are the advantages as a choreographer to working with people who who kind of know your style inside and out? It's almost like, you remember a Rolodex? Not really, but sure. People have this thing on their desk called a Rolodex where they just have all these addresses and they just flip through them and they get really dog-eared. It's a bit like that. Like their bodies are just like a virtual index of vocabulary that they've done in different pieces of mine. And so it's so much fun because we can just play and develop and deepen stuff that already, that they've already internalized. And there's a shared, not just language, but there's a shared nod sensibility Mm -hmm. of, you know, I was just working on a drawing um, of props that I've used and over the years, and you see the repetition of props. And one of the things was these props that light up. And uh, I would just put lights in props. Like there was a light in a desk and a light in an umbrella and a light in a hat and a light in a bonnet and a light in a boot. And, you know, things were lit up. And then there was plugs in things so they could be, oh, well, there was mics in all sorts of things. Um, and that kind of sensibility that the world is kind of alive, it lights, it talks, it, you know what I mean? That was very shared with us. So we could riff, I guess would be the word, you know, that it wasn't like, oh, cool, let's try that. It was like, we've done it so many times. How can we do it differently this time? And, you know, it's that brilliance of the collective brain that you just don't get when you work with someone new. Um, One of the kind of, themes in your book is the way that women artists are often unappreciated in their lifetime, or if they are appreciated, appreciated very late in their lifetime. And I'm wondering how you've kind of approached that idea of legacy as a woman artist who has worked a lot with, with your husband, Paul Lazar. Uh, Do you, do you feel like that was something you were very conscious of, like not letting people describe it as like his company or something like that? Or was that, did that kind of just come more naturally? What's been your relationship with kind of the ways that, you know, the media or academia or whoever kind of characterizes or periodizes work in that way? Um, Yeah. um, I can't say that we, we had that, but I have definitely, had many, many, many experiences where there was a priority for the male choreographer. Um, you know, like if I'm in a shared program, it's always the man that has his picture in the paper. Um, it's always the man that's interviewed. It's a, I mean, maybe things are changing now, but that was just de rigueur. I mean, it, there, there, the, there's been so much sexism and um, I, can't, I can't say that when I wrote about these women, because they're just such brilliant geniuses, I felt that I was part of that world in any way, just more frustrated that they're just not part of the drinking water in the mainstream. They are a little, even a little more now since I wrote about them. Mm-hmm. 
but um, I guess I feel like when the ball is thrown to you when you're young, when the world sees you as possibly one of the greats and you're given those opportunities, your work really, really changes. Um, and none of them had that. Mm-hmm. Do you feel like, do you feel like you had that or do you feel like it, it took a while for people to notice your work? Um, no, I don't think I had that. I, I feel like it really wasn't until maybe um, the last few years. I mean, I've had so many opportunities that mm-hmm. it's sort of unfair as I say this to, to say that I didn't, but um, yeah, you, you need, I was always working in the mainstream music world, but it was unknown and I hadn't shared that so much with the downtown dance world. Do you know what I mean? Like I'd sort of kept those worlds separate. And then when I did end up sharing that through social media and stuff, the way people just sort of share their careers more on a daily basis, I feel like I got more respect. Is that what you mean? Yeah, maybe. Yeah. I, I, it's interesting to hear. I mean, you know, obviously you're you, so you have a different relationship to like your work than I do, but like, I'm certainly not the only person who will hear this podcast who thinks that you're a brilliant genius. And, you know, Uh I'm glad that you have like, your work has, has gained some, you know, some, some, uh, recognition in, in recent years. And it's, it's good that, that that's happened, but you know, I, I haven't been following your career for anywhere near, the whole career. So I was just kind of wondering kind of how, what that felt like when you were in it. It, it felt like I always had this theory or sort of practice that everything is an energy loop and that if you put something out there and you work really hard on it and you do everything you can to make it what you want it to be, and then it's received in kind, then you should go on. Um, if someone asks you to do something then, and you respond by doing it, then there's this sort of, well, duality. I guess I've sort of played that game rather than, and I always would say I always had another chance to make something. Mm-hmm. And, and inside I felt like if I don't have another chance, then I'm not going to make something that it was always contingent in a sense on the next opportunity. And I did have those. They, some of them were very, very small, tiny, you know, not Mm -hmm. something that, um, I mean, right. It's, they're not always giant things, but it's just anything where somebody says, do something. And you're like, I want to, too. You know what I mean? That reciprocity, I was sort of depending on and I got it. Mm -hmm. Um, but not always, at the level that would make it possible for me to, you know, pay people a lot of money or pay myself or anything like that. Sure. Sure. Another thing you write about the book is kind of just the, like the, the title is the choreography of everyday life. And you do write about, you know, the kind of the the choreography of, of protests and the choreography of, you know, walking on the sidewalk. And you have this phrase that I wrote down, the tacit musical duality that strangers have when walking and passing. Um, And reading that really made me realize how much I feel like the way the street choreography in New York has changed in the last several years. Um, And I think it's sort of gotten worse. (laughs) Like it seems like people are less careful. I had a friend who was recently in um, Edinburgh and said that there, when people are 10 feet away, they like move several feet to the side so that they don't brush into you. But like New Yorkers do this sort of very, you know, short little shoulder shrug to kind of barely not run into people, which has always seemed, it works so much of the time and it's always seemed just so beautiful and elegant to me. But I I, I personally have felt like in recent years, I, I see people doing that less and I think, gosh, if I was on my phone, like this person was on their phone, we would have just run. <laughs> do, do you feel well, like that has changed? I mean, and I feel like the pandemic is probably part of it too, that, that people are, are, are more 
I don't know. They, I, you would think they'd be more careful, but it doesn't seem to have worked out that way. <laughs> it's a very dynamic question, actually, because I do feel like at the beginning of the pandemic, there were these, of course, we didn't know what the trajectory of our breathing disease thing was, you know, how infectious we were. So we were giving each other the widest berth. Remember, like we're basically crossing the street or walking into the street to get around mm-hmm. people. But that really has changed. And you see at the beginning of my book how crabby I am about trying to get down the sidewalk with the phone and the leash and the, you know, <laughs> yeah, I agree with you. But it's all the dance, you know, it's all a dance. It's what, however you feel about it, it's a dance that's, that's um, shaped by these various technologies. Uh, the te- the, a leash is a technology, isn't it? Mm-hmm. Um, a phone is obviously a technology. Um, and we are, have this beautiful innate sense of dancing that, I mean, okay, we give up a lot to live in New York, right? And, uh, So I think that most New Yorkers have kind of a a series of conceits about New York being a New Yorker and stuff. But I think one of mine is that we're we walk as a group really beautifully. And I I will stand by that because, you know, you go into Midtown and you walk in a place where there's a lot of tourists and they just stink at it. Mm -hmm. Well, they have a different rhythm. So. Uh, you know, rather than sounding all judgy about it, I would just say we have a shared rhythm and it's getting a little broken down by the phone for sure. And so on a happier day, I would say that's just a different dance. Mm -hmm. There's a word that you use that I I don't think I've ever encountered before, which is kinesphere. And I, I think I love this word, but I don't quite know what it means. Could you tell us what it means or maybe what it, what it means to you? Okay. Yeah. What it means to me, I think I learned it, you know, when I was a student, maybe in, when I was studying effort shape or Laban notation or something. Um, it's a really, it's one of my favorite words because it describes the space around your body. So, and how you use that space. So like, do you know anybody that uses, oh, I wish you could see me. I'm making little actions close to my body and their hands are very close to their chest and they move little things with their fingers and they, they move in a small kinosphere as opposed to people that like always have their arms spread wide. I have my arms spread wide right now. And they're like really big kinosphere people. And that, and that is sort of how I think of it. Like people that are engaging in a larger kinosphere around their body versus the smallest. The biggest kinesphere I think that you can make with your body is the arabesque mm. a la second, because I think that's the most you could stretch um, unless you would count a really high jumper with an arm stretched up. So it's what you can touch without locomotion. Does that make sense? Yeah, it does. And and it also, I mean, I, I you use it not quite metaphorically, but it has, it, it has some kind of relationship to a person's, you know, character or the way they carry themselves in the world. Like I'm thinking of, you know, my, my grandmother is a physically quite small woman, uh, and, and she's, you know, she's, she's old, uh, but she's, she's got a very large kinesphere, you know, she's like, (laughs) is, you know, stretches out to hug people and is always gesturing and dancing. And, you know, she's, she's fills up space. Whereas I know other people who are, you know, who are very tall or very large and, and who sort of shrink into themselves and, and try not yeah. to take up space. And, yeah. and you, you talk about uh, Odysseus sneaking into the palace as a beggar. And you talk about that being a small kinesphere moment where he's, you know, trying to be inconspicuous, but then he becomes large kinesphere when he becomes, when he gets revealed and he goes on his, you know, killing spree. And, and, and I, I really <laughs> yeah. love this as a way to think about like this is like a feels like a great like acting class thing if like I'm gonna be just walking around being like oh yeah big kinesphere big kinesphere, <laughs> you know good I'm so glad yeah that's that was one of the things that um, was really really fun for me to write about because basically this book I I mean I, I just everything in it I've thought about my whole adult life and I just had the opportunity as the editor said just write something. Well, th- that, those are the things. Like if somebody said that to you, you just have all these thoughts that you've developed in your head and how people use the space. I always think about it. And I think I think about it even a little too much sometimes. 
So watch out if I see you. <laughs> sure, sure. I think people can get very judgmental about kinesphere stuff, you know, I think especially as it relates to like privilege, you know, that yeah. if you're on the subway and there's a, a man who is taking more spreading. space than people, yeah, man spreading, more people, they, more space than people feel he deserves that people really, that, that makes people very angry. It does. And it, it, it's, it's revealing of that you, that you and the space are that you think you own more space than someone else. Your sense of the real, the shared real estate is a little bit off of what other people think. And it's telling, you know, it's super interesting. I recently saw an exhibit by the painter Oscar Howe, uh, who is a, a Dakota painter. Um, uh-huh. I don't know if you saw this exhibit that was at the National Museum of the American Indian. No. Well, it, it was really fantastic. I think it's closed now. And he painted a lot of dance scenes. And, oh. you know, there was sun dances and war dances and morning dances and stuff like that. And what what struck me about them was that the emotional range of the dances was incredibly wide, uh, it, you know, in, in the culture that he's from and that he's depicting. Whereas I think Americans probably, you know, or I don't I don't know what term to use but you know people from my culture basically only dance in like a celebratory mood like at a at a party or at a club or something like that do you feel like the kind of narrow emotional range of american social dancing makes it hard to choreograph dances for moments that are more kind of somber or tragic yeah i i think the range the way that we don't use dance or have left dance behind makes dance very, um, you know, it's a, a, people really don't understand how to look at dance or feel dance because watching dance is a kinesthetic experience. Mm-hmm. Um, they, there's even a term for it, like a kinesthetic empathy where if a dancer jumps, your body jumps inside, you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. And we don't really have that because I wasn't brought up dancing. I mean, my beside that my father was always dancing and we would dance and stuff. I'm talking about the society I was in didn't dance at all, except for, as you say, at a party. So we didn't use dance for grief. We didn't use dance for work, for fertilization, for spiritual purposes. Um, we sat down for spiritual purposes. We sat down for grief. You know what I mean? It's, it was sort of the opposite. So, of course, the audience finds dance very strange, especially abstraction. I love that response. And, and it makes me think, like, what would it look like even to, you know, to dance at a funeral or something like that? Or, you know, it, you, you talk a little bit about... Um, the choreography at, at protests and and you talk about the day that it became finally clear that Donald Trump had lost re-election um, and there was a lot of dancing but that was a very that was like a group celebration type dance so it felt a little bit closer to to a party than, than well other. I would I would say that was unusual in that that felt close to what I understand ecstatic dancing to be mm-hmm. and ecstatic dancing is is one of those things that I had never experienced before. So I would say it wasn't close to a party. It got party like later, but that first burst of dancing, like I was dancing with my male woman mm-hmm. and <laughs> that was exciting, da- ecstatic dancing. And it, in that we weren't dancing to music or anything. There was no music. There was no party. We were just moving our body in this kind of thrilling, you know, ecstasy. I'd never done that before. So I think it's what I, I, it made me realize how fundamental that is. It's beyond training. It's, it's sort of underneath everything and grief dancing in grief, I would assume would be a correlative to that. We just don't let ourselves do it. Mm-hmm. Um, it, it does strike me though, that there are times when, when people have, danced in a moment of grief or sadness like i'm thinking of this video this was maybe you know 10 or even 15 years ago now of david rakoff dancing when he'd lost one of his arms to cancer and he knew that he was dying soon and he, he performed this beautiful dance at a like this american life live event or something and yeah. it it was it it was like huge it went you know super viral even though you know things didn't i think usually get as much traction then as, as seems very regular now. Um, and there was something about him 
kind of dancing and kind of celebrating his his body and his capacity for movement, even though his capacity for movement was quite diminished, that I think people found quite moving. So I feel like even though it's not part of our normal culture, I think there is an appetite for that. I do. I think so, too. And I, I, I was thinking about the TikTok dances as these mm-hmm. sort of domestic folk dances that um, are almost... Uh, like, t- uh, you know, adolescent coming of age dances. I think they're pretty important. Do you watch a lot of TikTok dances? No, because you see, I don't have, I'm, I'm not really interested in the material that much. Uh-huh, sure. and, you know what I mean? Because it's repetitive, yeah. but I love that they're doing it. And I love that they tend to be in their bedrooms or the backyard or, you know, and they're with their peer group and, it's, it feels like we're getting somewhere when I see them. Mm-hmm. And it's not just young women either. I mean, I notice, you know, there are a lot of boys who are do- in these dancing videos, which feels, you know, I'm 30. That feels like that was, would not have been something we would have done when we were uh-huh. teenagers. I think there's been a slight change in kind of the way that young men are taught to inhabit their bodies maybe. As yeah, no, I think dance is becoming more important. I really do. Mm-hmm. I can't tell you how, when I started, when I decided like, I want to be a dancer, I want to be a choreographer. People just looked at me like I was the weirdest person, <laughs> almost like I was bad. Mm-hmm. And now if somebody says, what do you do? And I say, I'm a choreographer. They actually know what it is for starters. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I mean, of course they think I, you know, you can imagine what they think I do, but um, nevertheless, they still have an idea that it's about, you know, configuring the way the body moves in space in some way. It's definitely more in the mainstream. Mm -hmm. This episode is brought to you by Sax.com. At Sax.com, it's easy to find your new vibe. Dive into the Western trend with gold cowboy boots from Stott. Or go full 90s throwback with platforms from Prada. You can shop for everything on your agenda. Whether it's a breezy Zimmerman dress for a garden party or a bright Chloe blazer for brunch. Find inspiration for your new vibe. Every day at Saks.com. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Um, could you talk a bit about your relationship as a as a choreographer to your dancers or the, or the dancers that you work with and and how that's different from uh, from kind of those circumstances where you are choreographing with your company versus choreographing, you know, on a commission? And does that feel very different or quite similar to kind of the relationship between a playwright and a director to an actor? When I'm working on a with a company, like right now I'm doing two operas. And these dance dancers that I'm working with, they are people that I auditioned. So in both cases, it's a group of like 15 dancers who I've never met before in my life. Um, and there's a learning process for most of them. They're strangely, or maybe not strangely, the ones that were <laughs> the ones that were trained in the Trisha Brown company. There's a couple are not struggling at all with the, it's really about the tonality of how to perform uh, that's hard to pass on. But most of them, there's a learning process of being more simple, being a little bit more direct in their movement, um, letting the movement speak rather than them having some sort of emotional connection to the movement, at least at the beginning uh, when they're, just starting to find the movement. And I think one of the biggest differences when I work with people I know is, oh gosh, I mean, there's such a large spectrum here, but when I work with people I know, I don't tend to make the movement myself at all. I tend to work with ideas that I share with them and then 
give them a quote unquote assignment or some kind of form to play with. And then they make something and then I shape it and then they shape that. And then I shape that. And it's a back and forth, back and forth. I like to think of it as like a really, really intense tennis match where somebody's like hitting the ball really hard in the corner. You know what I mean? And you have to like reach really hard to get it like stuff like that where it's just so intense and cool. Or I think it's really cool. I would never do that with people I haven't worked with before because we don't have enough common language. Um, and all the way to the point where some, some groups, like when I did American Utopia or um, Here Lies Love, where we just taught the movement. Because unless you have training in dance, generating movement material is it's a very different um, skill. And we have to remember that as dancers, you know, we have like as much training as a doctor, maybe more, <laughs> you know, I mean, we have class six days a week for 20 years and we're never let out of class. Basically, you're always in a position of learning. Um, and some of that learning in the people that I work the most with is about generating material. So it's a very, very different process when I work with people that I don't know. It's pretty clear from your book and, and also even just from your choreography that other art forms outside of choreography often influence the way that you choreograph, like visual art, theater, literature. Could you talk a little bit about how you kind of translate influences from outside of dance into kind of dance terms? Yeah, I'll give an example of poetry. Um, I, I was brought up with a lot of poetry and um, at some point I thought I will study all the, the poetics, you know, the sonnet, the villanelle, the iambic pentameter, all the different ways that the page is organized based in rhythm. And um, that was really cool. And then I would try to make dance in a certain poetic form, using that form, the rhythm of the page, mm -hmm. of the lines, okay? And then I would organize the dance, like let's say it was... Uh, a sonnet where it's four lines, four lines, three lines, three lines, I think with X amount of syllables and so on and so forth. Mm -hmm. Then I would organize the dance in that way. And lots of cool stuff happened. But then I decided that I wanted to do that with a movie script. So because I really was wanted to do, use a movie script in one of my dances and the movie script that I wanted to work with was terms of endearment. So I, but I hated the script the words, it was so, they just blathered on and on and on. And I couldn't really imagine a bunch of dancers like, you know what I mean? Wait, but, so what, why did you want to work with that movie script if you didn't like the words? Well, I didn't like the writing, mm -hmm. but I liked the movie. Um, sure. So I know that sounds sort of strange. I no, liked no. the yeah, relationships and I liked the aesthetic of the movie. And I mm -hmm. kind of related to it because I grew up in a suburb and so forth. And I love the acting. So I thought I will take poetic forms and I will like sick these poetic forms onto the movie script. I got the rights to do it. And I basically rewrote the entire movie script of her terms of endearment into a series of different poetic forms. I used the ode, the villanelle, the blah, blah, blah. Then I gave that script to my performers. So that was one layer of the dance was this text of that script rewritten. <laughs> did did they did they like recite the script or did the script just become kind of the 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 bare bones for the choreography? They recited it. Wow. Or they I like you're using the word recite. <laughs> they acted the form, it. I don't know. Well yes, yeah, they acted it. Yeah, yeah sure, they acted sure. it. Yeah. Mm -hmm. That um and <laughs> it sounds crazy, but actually this I'm really, you know, everybody, everybody that makes things has certain pieces that they feel the most excited about still. And that is definitely one of them. <laughs> What's so exciting about that? I mean, is it like sort of the, the ambition of it that is exciting to you when you look back on it? Or what, what still kind of excites you about that piece? The, the process of translating a movie script into poetic forms. <laughs> I like it. And then it really affected the way I choreographed the thing. But I can't totally talk about that because it's been a while since I made that piece. Sure. I just remember, I remember, you know, being so involved at home in the rewrite of the script 
that when I would walk in the studio, I just felt all these poetic forms as a, I felt really comfortable with them. Like I really understood what a spondy was and a trochee was and things like that. And if you know what those are and you apply them to movement, it's pretty interesting. Yeah. You know, or like I was trying to think of way to answer your question vis-a-vis music. So like, um, the last piece I made was called The Mood Room, and I worked with this composer, Holly Herndon. Mm-hmm. So Holly Herndon works with an AI baby to make her work. Um, and or she calls it a baby. She calls it her baby. Her baby is an AI being. And she made all this music, and then I worked with it, and it really affected the choreography. Did it affect the choreography differently than working with any piece of music would? I think so, because her process is so um, algorithmic. Mm-hmm. It is algorithmic. She makes it via algorithms. And I, I would... T- okay, so... I would interpret those, I guess is the best way to use it. Like I would listen to a piece of music and sort of figure out what I thought she was up to. Even if it wasn't what she was up to, it didn't matter. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. Um, And then I would use that to construct the dances. That piece also used some text from Three Sisters, I think. Isn't that right? Yeah, it sure did. And Chekhov is someone who you've you've returned to a couple of times. Um, Yeah. I think that's like a great, a great source text for choreography because I don't think a lot of people think of those things, you know, kind of postmodern dance and Chekhov as being a kind of natural fit. <laughs> what to you? I mean, other than all the things that are totally brilliant and great about Chekhov, like what are the things about his work that excite you as a choreographer? Okay, uh, first of all, thank you for the question. It's such a great question, and nobody has ever asked me that. Um, I think we all have our like lifelong loves and that just voices, literary voices that are in our head. And Mm -hmm. so Chekhov is definitely one of mine. I think he's been snuck into every piece I've ever made, sometimes really snuck in the back door, like you would have no idea, but Mm -hmm. sometimes more overtly, like in the mood room where I really use a, a lot of, I, with permission from the estate, I used quite a bit of Chekhov. So, we are human beings making our work um, besides being interested in how movement affects, you know, different movements that affect the body and composition and so forth, which is all very cold on some level. We're also people that walk into the theater and Chekhov has always been somebody who speaks to me in that way, in that he writes about issues around regret, um, dailiness, um, relationality better than or speaks very deeply to, to my feelings about living. Mm -hmm. Um, and it's, it's, and so it's very easy for me to slip into his text. Um, he's also really, really witty and dry, funny, not ha ha funny. Um, so the humor really works for me. It, I don't know if you saw The Road Awaits Us, but I end it with the last scene of The mm-hmm. Cherry Orchard. And the farewell of that scene, like, okay, so yeah, I am obsessed with The Cherry Orchard, but the last scene of it, I've always wanted somehow to hit. And because I was working with these older dancers, everybody was 70 and up. I felt like it was fair for me to try. You know, it takes, it's like, you have to be respectful and disrespectful kind of simultaneously. Mm-hmm. And there I got to play with Chekhov in this other way of like learning from those performers, how to think about this material of farewells or of last goodbyes of death, so to speak. Um, And Chekhov does that incredibly well. But I have to add that since I made both of those pieces, I might be defecting from Chekhov a bit to a new a new writer who, um, well, he's not new, but new to me, which is, um, I say, Babel. Hmm. 
I don't know his work nearly as well as I know Chekhov's work. What what is it about him? Nor did I. I had never read him in my whole life. And he writes around the same period, mm-hmm. just a hair later. And it's like Chekhov with blood running down his face. <laughs> a very important hair later. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, a very important 15 years. But yeah. Uh, yeah, because my family is Russian and uh-huh. um, it, Russian Jew, and so is Babel, of course. And I, I, there, I can't even start to talk about him yet. Just read him, Andy. Read him. Okay, I'll do that. It's, and it's making Chekhov. It's really might be ending my Chekhov phase. Now, I mean, I, I know yeah. you can do both and, but somehow this might not be a both and. Mm-hmm. You have to read them to get it. And I, I don't know how to talk about them, except for to say it takes Chekhov and sort of rips them in pieces. What an endorsement. I think I have one of his books on one of my shelves somewhere. I, I'll, I'll crack it open. Um, I, kind of on the same topic, I just want to read something that you wrote back to you. You say, even though we desire artists to be godlike and prophetic, they are just people doing their business. And their combination of insight and lack of insight will align and unalign as the world shifts. Do you feel like that part of what that's part of what's going on is that the world is shifting in a in a Isaac Babel direction that makes his work oh. seem contemporary again? Oh my god, totally. Yes, I really really do. I mean the gentility of Chekhov maybe is wearing a little thin in this moment as the world shifts. Mm-hmm. Um and drawing me to a writer who's has more more capacity to write about violence or um and about darkness cruelty. Um, they're both incredibly complex thinkers. So, um, but the way that Babel writes, uh, it's, it's, it's unsettling in some way that the world that feels very aligned with the world right now. Yeah. I think you're right. Mm-hmm. In Chekhov, there's a sense of like, this can't keep going on like this forever, but they're, they're not yet at the crisis. You know, these his characters can see it kind of see the storm clouds on the horizon, but they're yeah. not quite there yet. Yeah, that's right. And and then with Babel, there it is. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but he's also, Babel's also very um, intoxicated by the enemy. Mm-hmm. And that's the complexity, some of the complexity of what he's writing about. He's he's drawn to, he's drawn to the bravura the hero's journey he's drawn to all those things that and even the even some of the stupidity and the big muscles and all that stuff I mean it's so honest Jacob's honest too but and I and I could never use Babel I know that but he's definitely sinking in but I do want to see something else about that quote Great. As, is to say that I feel like it's really annoying to me. Uh, it's one of my pet peeves, the way the society continues to look to artists to be perfect. Mm-hmm. And it's some sort of strange sense that people that make art are beholden to some kind of morality. And the truth is, is that they're, un- it's, it's just seriously unrelated. Mm-hmm. Does doing our work make us better people? So far, haven't seen it. I think people want that to be true, though, and people want that to be true of experiencing art. They want to think that, I mean, I feel like there's a there's a desire to be like, well, reading, you know, great literature makes you more empathetic or something like that, because we don't want to admit that it's just a pleasure, because if it's just a pleasure, then it's a pleasure like any other pleasure. And it doesn't it stops being this sort of exalted thing that's maybe worth teaching in school and giving federal funding to or something like that. Like, what do you feel like that, do where do you feel like that desire comes from? Well, I, I, well, just to say, I do think reading literature makes you a, I mean, I use the word better in quotes because I think it nudges you in the right direction and the right direction, meaning that it's you, great literature does force you to think about your own actions mm-hmm. um, in some very secured, circuitous way. Uh, it's a process, um, a really positive process. So I would say it does but I say nudge you in the right. I mean, it's not like going to change you. It just puts you in a frame of mind of having more dimensionality. Same with theater. I mean, that's what theater was for. The, isn't theater the first therapy? I certainly think the argument can be can be made. Yeah. 
Okay. <laughs> but theater is also, you know, I mean, you know, theater also, I think, has uh, originally had a sort of religious d- dimension dimension to it. And I wonder if that's part of it, too, if there's like a loss of faith in in traditional religion has kind of caused people to kind of sacralize their relationship to art and look to that for moral guidance because they're not getting it from the older sources. Do you think that might be part of what's going on? I think theater, well, I mean, dance also had religious mm-hmm. roots, but it depends how you define religion, but certainly much early theater was just as the best psychology I've ever seen. I mean, you know how I feel about Euripides. You want to learn about yourself? You know, I would say read Euripides because it's hard to watch it because sometimes the directing and the acting is so rough. But yeah, no, I think it's, I think theater and dance, you know, all these art forms were brilliant beyond way beyond what therapy can do for you. Mm-hmm. I don't want to take too much of, more of your time, but it, it just makes me think of kind of one of the basic things that's useful about therapy is it's somebody else who's like looking at your actions and maybe even not even commenting on them, but just seeing yourself through somebody else's eyes is, is very useful. And that yeah. seems to me related to dramatic irony. And you, you kind of make the observation that, you know, as far as we know, Greek theater is or the first people who really do that to show us a character that understands themselves less well than we do, you know, yeah. which is we're in that we're in that situation all the time. We, you know, I, I all, all the time I'm understanding myself less well than than my partner understands me or something like that. Um, do you feel like that's that's part of what's exciting to you about the Greeks? Yeah, I do. Well, I mean, it's just so it's so strong in their work. But part of me, part of what's exciting to me in the Greek theater, not that I'm a I'm that well versed. I only know the plays that I've done. And, you know, the, the best way to read a play is to work on it. I mean, my God, as Brecht said, the people that know the play the best is, are the actors. But um, the thing I love about Greek theater is the emotional uh, intelligence. It's beyond anything that we've ever, we could write now. I mean, I, I have never seen, like Euripides understands how to, you know, how we suffer and the consequences of it. I've never seen, I can't think of another writer that can do that. Yeah. We haven't gotten more, um, you know, insight, I don't think, into the human character than the Greeks. We flicker in and out, probably. Mm-hmm. I've always felt like Lorca seems like a weird, like, time traveler from that period. <laughs> I, feel I like think he, so, too. He's, he's close to it, yeah. Uh, it's funny you mentioned it because I was just thinking of a poem he wrote where he says, um, um, for love of you, my heart and my hat hurt me. Who will buy of me this ribbon of grief? There's so much wit in that. Yeah. And there's so much pain and there's so much God, you know, just incredible joy. Uh, yeah. Lorca's definitely in that <laughs> We're so lucky we can just dip in, in and out of these people. I mean, yeah, books are great. They survive. That's why I hate, <laughs> that's why I can't stand dance and theater. It just goes away and mm-hmm. that's it. Then we're done. You know, it's all it just disappears. I'm very not in favor of ephemerality. You you don't you're not into it. <laughs> no, I hate butterflies. It's just <laughs> <laughs> okay, so one one last question. I I, I know I've, I've taken up a lot of your time already, but I do want to ask about, you know, the idea of liveness and kind of how, because I think for me, one of the thing, one of the lessons of the pandemic was like, my God, ephemerality, what a beautiful thing. Like if something is just a, a video I can watch whenever I want to, I'm just never going to watch it. But if it's a performance <laughs> that I have to see this weekend, then I'll go. Um, true, true. And that that to me, you know, and the fact that you're in a theater and you you can't look at your phone and you can't talk and you just have to pay attention just seems like such an incredible gift to me in our incre- increasingly distracted uh, uh, world. So, I mean, I, I guess I, I'll, I, I've ran out of actual questions. So I'll just say, you know, kind of how did the pandemic uh, change your sense of, you know, is the live event important in some way? Why does that have something to do with ephemerality? If not, what does it have to do with uh yeah we have a couple of minutes left what are what are the uh, what are your answers to the the biggest questions in performance theory in the past uh 30 years <laughs> um well liveness is is really the the word of the of the moment um because we're losing our liveness and everything seems more precious i mean going back to the theater seems more precious and um it's our time seems more valuable um 
I, I'm not in, and, and also I, I realized like we're not in the practice of going to the theater anymore. So we're, we're not as good at it. Mm-hmm. We, we don't have the patience and I'm not just speaking for myself. I don't have the patience, but I also know presenters are saying, you know, pieces are tending to be shorter. Audiences are at 50%, you know, and I'm not sure all of that is about physical safety vis-a-vis the, the pandemic. I think it's all takes practice and we were very practiced in going to live performance and maybe took it for granted. I'm with you. I mean, the excitement, I, I'm moved to tears half the time when I love something that's live because it's, there's it, the, the weight of it, you know, you feel the gravity of it more for sure. Yeah. I find even, yeah, just seeing someone do a dance on stage is just always so incredibly moving to me. I don't, I don't know what it is. It's just, wow, somebody's really trying hard to make something beautiful. And that's I don't, <laughs> I'm glad it, you it's maybe more obvious in dance than in anything else, like just how much effort goes into it, you know? Yeah, yeah, that's true. Physical effort in that moment. And you're the only, you know, that group of people, that community of people sitting there are in their church. They're the only people that are seeing it and it's going to go away. And it's different every time. And um, it's very precious. But when you have a long career of making giant pieces and they're gone, you know, it feels funny. Mm-hmm. It feels mm-hmm. sad. Yeah. It feels sad in a very chekhov way to me. It, you know, it, it does. Like- that's why I like books. I mean, that's why I'm excited to have a book, to have written a book. Well, Annie B., I really enjoyed the book uh, so much, The Choreography of Everyday Life. Thanks so much for writing it, and thanks so much for talking with me about it. It was great to talk to you, Andy. Thanks for having me.